0: Romans chapter 16. Everybody there? Good. As we come to the final chapter in Romans, or even in any book, it's kind of, there, there becomes a tendency to kind of skip over it or to speed through it, and, you know, we want to kind of hurry up, and we figure, oh, well, Paul said all he needs to say, and let's just kind of get through it and get on to the next book. But I think it would do us well to study this chapter the way that we have all of the previous chapters and verses in the book of Romans. Because I think we can learn some things about the Apostle Paul and about his ministry. Uh, We can learn some personal things. And we can learn some of the intimate details of his ministry as we take a look together this morning at this final chapter. We'll see that Paul, he's not a lone ranger in ministry. He's not not out there serving the Lord all by himself. In fact, he's got many friends, and he's going to thank many of them and mention many of them as we study through this chapter. He didn't do it all by himself, and it's important for us to remember that because sometimes as we step out into ministry, whether it be serving as a pastor or a leader or even just a a ministry that the Lord's called you to, you're not supposed to do it alone. You're supposed to do it with the body of Christ, and the body of Christ is going to come alongside of you and support you, and you should have people that that are helping you in that. But we also are going to see Paul's final plea. Uh, I, I kind of think of it as all the stuff that he's told us, all the doctrinal stuff, and, and Romans has been so rich in doctrine, but he's going to tell he's going to give us one final plea against division in the church or or he's going to plead for the church to stay unified watch out for those people that would come into the body of Christ and try to divide the body of Christ and I think as he's closing this letter out with this final chapter and we know that chapters were put in later but as he's kind of closing out with his final thoughts above all he says listen I want you guys to be careful that nobody comes that you don't let people come into the church and divide the church he's going to tell us how to deal with that as we travel through the chapter and finally we're going to see as Paul closes out this wonderful book of Romans we're going to see in his final few sentences just praise for the Lord just adoration for what God has done as he writes this letter to the believers so let's begin in Romans chapter 16 verse 1 he says I commend to you Phoebe our sister who is a servant of the church in Centuria that you may receive her in the Lord in a manner worthy of the saints and you assist her in whatever business she has need of you for indeed, she has been a helper of many, and myself also. Phoebe, the name means bright or radiant, bright and radiant or bright one, bright one, bright star, radiant one. It comes from the feminine version of the female name of the goddess Artemis, or also known as Diana. So it's a, it's, a, it's a pagan name. It probably tells us that she was not Jewish but Gentile. And I find it interesting because sometimes we would say, well, you're named after a pagan god, therefore you need to change your name. But Paul doesn't say that at all. Instead, there's, there seems to be no indication that it doesn't say tell Phoebe to change her name. Instead, it says tell Phoebe, receive her. She's a servant of the church in Christ. Paul tells the recipients of the letter, hey, Phoebe is a fellow servant. She's a fellow Christian. We know what her name means. Don't worry about that part. She's serving us, and you need to receive her just as I've received her. In the early church, women were often found taking care of the sick, visiting and feeding the poor, and even discipling, and this is one of their important roles, was discipling the younger women in the early church. And what Paul's saying is Phoebe was found faithful in these things. She was faithful to disciple the women. She was faithful to do those tasks and those chores that were given to her. She was a faithful servant in the body of Christ. And Paul said, hey, she even helped me. She's even been a a jewel in my ministry. She's been helpful to me. Sometimes when women especially read Paul's writings, they tend to accuse him of being narrow-minded or even perhaps chauvinistic. Uh, but here, I, I pointed out because Paul is recognizing the value of women in the ministry or in the church. In fact, the Greek word there in verse 1, it's, it's, it, it's, it's translated to English as servant. The Greek word there can also be translated deacon, and it is in other places in the scripture. It's the same Greek word used in 1 Timothy chapter 3.8 that says, Likewise deacons, likewise servants... Likewise, deacons must be reverent, not double-tongued, not given to much wine, not greedy for money, holding the mystery of the faith with a pure conscience, but let those also, let these also first be tested. Let them serve as deacons, being found blameless. You say, wait a minute, Rob, what's, you, you, are you saying women can be deacons in the church? Remember this, a deacon was not and is not a position of authority in a church, it's a position of service. Yeah. It's a position of serving the church. It's a position. Of, it can be a man or it can be a woman. In the early church, there were women who served in this capacity, and Paul is simply recognizing Phoebe for her great value to the church. That's all he's saying. In fact, the Revised Standard Version translates verse 1 this way, I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a deaconess of the church at Centuria. Calls her a deaconess. Sometimes in our denominational backgrounds, we would say, no, no, that's a position for a man. No, the early church, the deacon, only meant servant. It meant you were a servant. You served the body of Christ in whatever way was necessary. And Paul here is clearly saying that could be a man or a woman, a man or a woman serving. A deacon is not an elder. A deacon doesn't hold a teaching position. A deacon is just simply a man or a woman who says or is able to serve the body of Christ. And sometimes. In any church, needs will pop up that require a feminine touch. Sometimes a woman has a way of dealing with the situation better than a man can or serving in a a different than a man can. They're servants in the church, not teachers in the church. That's what we need to understand. We're not making deacons and elders, and depending on the denominational background you come from, you go, I don't know if I agree with that, Rob. I'm just simply pointing out that there in verse 1, the word for servant is the same word that's translated deacon other places in the scripture. And I think Paul's recognizing that Paul that, that women have that valuable, valuable role of service in the church, and their roles are also very, very well defined in that. Look at verse 3. Paul goes on, he says, Greet Priscilla and Aquila, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus, who risk their own necks for my life, to whom not only I give thanks, but also all that churches of the Gentiles. Likewise, greet the church that is in their house. Aquila and Priscilla are a dynamic couple who appear listed in the scripture seven times. Seven times they're mentioned, and they're always listed as a husband and wife team. We know that Paul first met them in Corinth in uh, Acts chapter 18. And like Paul, they were tent makers. They worked with their hands. Everywhere they lived, and we see them now, now he's writing to them, they're living in Rome. And here's the amazing thing about them. Everywhere they lived, they ended up with a church meeting in their home. That's what we see. They're a husband and wife team that ended up with the church meeting their home, even including Rome, as Paul mentions that here. They opened their hearts to the Lord, then wherever they went, they opened their homes. Is your your home open to the Lord? Are you open to what the Lord's saying? Hey, I'd like you to use your home for ministry in some way. I'd like you to, you know, and and sometimes we think, well, that means I got to teach a Bible study. No, it doesn't. Maybe it's just inviting somebody over for dinner some night just going over for some fellowship hey why don't you guys come on over you know we go to the same church we're christians you're christians why don't you come over and have dinner with us one night and then we can break bread together we can share we can kind of talk about church or life in general and you know what that does that builds relationships with people that's what they were doing as they opened their home they were able to build relationships with people i would encourage us from time to time to ask the lord hey is my home open is my home available to be used for ministry you say, Rob, you don't understand. I'd have too much work to do. Well, then do the work. Maybe that's what he's calling you to do. Yeah, but I'd have to get this fixed and I'd have to get that fixed. and Then, then do it if that's what he's calling you to do. He'll provide the needs for that if he wants you to use your home for that. But don't be afraid. Don't be, don't be closed off. Open up your home if necessary, if something the Lord asks you to do. They opened their hearts to the Lord and then their homes were opened as well. They were a couple who merged ministry and marriage nicely. Seven times they get mentioned in the Bible. How cool is that? He goes on, saying hello to a lot of people here. He says, "Greet my beloved Epinitus, who is the first fruits of Achaia to Christ." Evidently, he was Paul's first convert in the area of Achaia. Some believe this was southern Greece. Others say it's the Roman province of Asia Minor, which we modern-day Turkey. It could be this first con- Paul's first convert in the area. Some people would even go as far as say this was Paul's first convert ever in Christ. If that's true. Paul hasn't forgot the first person he led to Christ. If it's just the first convert in a certain area, Paul still hasn't forgot the people that he's led to Christ. In other words, people are important to Paul. The ministry wasn't as important as the people were. Certainly the gospel, he wanted to spread it, but he had the concern for people. He's going to spend an entire chapter, throughout this chapter, he's going to say hi to about 35 people or so. Hey, remember this one, remember that one. Tell so and so I said hi. They're, they're beloved in the faith. He's going to continue on this because people are important. If you were to write back to the last town that you lived in, and maybe that's here, or the last neighborhood that you lived in, would there be a bunch of people that you want to list and say, hey, tell so-and-so I said hi. Tell this family I said hello. Oh, this family, they were so great to our family. What about this family? You see, so often in our culture, we get focused inwardly. We close our garages. We close our front doors. We don't want to talk to our neighbors. We don't even know our neighbors That's not the way the Apostle Paul was. The Apostle Paul got out and he knew his neighbors. He knew the people that were serving alongside in ministry. Not only is he mentioning them, he also tells us in many places he's praying for them. He's praying for them as well. Verse 6, greet Mary who labored much for us. There are several Marys in the Bible. We're not told who this is. We we have no reason to believe this is any other than than a general woman named Mary who was living in Rome, which is where this letter was going. But notice what it says. It says, Mary, who labored much for us. The word labor there, it means to serve to the point of exhaustion. It means I am serving the Lord up until the point where I am physically exhausted. I'm I'm exhausted. Paul says, this woman, Mary, you tell her. You you greet her and tell her I said hello. And we recognize her faithful servant to the Lord. And in serving the Lord, she was serving us. Have you ever labored, labored like that for the Lord? Have you ever been laboring and I'm all right, Lord, I'm going to serve you to the point of exhaustion. It's amazing when you reach that point how he reaches in and gives you the strength that you need to continue. You see, oftentimes people go, I can't do that. I'm too tired. I would challenge you that if, you're, if the Lord has called you to something to, and you're stepping on you, go, Lord, I'm, I'm beat, I'm exhausted, I'm too tired, let him strengthen you in that, in that point. Because once your physical strength gives out, it's when your spiritual strength, when the strength from him can take over. In your weakness, he is made strong. He doesn't need, he, He's not made strong in your strength when you're feeling good. He's made strong in your weakness. When you go, Lord, I don't think I can do this. I don't think I can go one more step. I don't think I can tell one more person about Jesus. It's hot out here. I want to go home. I want to sit down. I want to relax. We all feel that way sometimes. But it just might be the next person. It just be, it might be the next person that you walk up to and you go, hey, I got I to ask you, do you know Jesus that might be the person that goes, No, I don't know Jesus, but I need to know Jesus. And you lead them to Christ. Not that their eternal destination depends on your strength, but what you would miss out by going home and not receiving the strength of the Lord, you'd miss out the opportunity of leading someone to Christ. There's nothing more blessed than being able to share with someone that moment where you lead them to Christ, where they say, Where, where they come to the point where they say, Jesus, forgive me for my sins. I'll follow you today. There's nothing more blessed. You know the first person I ever led to Christ? Do you know the first person you ever led to Christ? first person I ever led to Christ was my mom I think I was like 10 I was going to Baptist school and my mom I came home telling her all about it and she'd kind of grown up in the church but I I, she prayed to accept Christ with me when I think I was about 10 years old 9 or 10 maybe 11 something like that but even that I can remember many people as I had a chance to lead them to Christ it's an amazing thing to to keep it some I lose touch with or because it's just passing and others I get to keep in touch with look at verse 7 names are going to get tough here Don't think I'm that smart. I've got them written down here how to say them. So don't think, how does he know how to say all these names? It's it's written here for me. Greet Andronicus and Junia, my countrymen, and my fellow prisoners. Fellow prisoners, people that served in prison with me, who are of note among the apostles who also were in Christ before me. Here's possibly an older couple who Paul's saying they served in prison, they did time with me, and they've been Christians longer than me. How cool is that? They they, they probably encouraged Paul in prison. Although we know little about them, we know they were appreciated by the apostle, and we know that they served in prison together with him for the gospel, for his belief on Jesus Christ. As we come to verse 8, Paul continues to greet his friends in Rome. Notice how how he begins to use terms of endearment. Greet Ampletus, my beloved in the Lord. Greet Urbanus, our fellow worker in Christ. And Stachys, my beloved, greet appellas approved in christ the word approved means tried and tested appellas approved in christ Apelles had been through the fire and been found faithful key component to someone who wants to serve in ministry you think i'd like to do something in ministry have you been tried and have you been tested it, it is it is a key thing if you say i, I want to be in ministry you have to be tried and you have to be tested first because you have to find out what you're made of that's the purpose of a test right to find out what you know it's not to pass or fail. A test will reveal to you, do I really know? Have I really been tested on what this is? Sometimes people will get promoted in ministry too quickly. Maybe they have a dynamic personality. Maybe they're, they're outgoing and, you know, whatever the reason is, and they, and they get moved up the chain in ministry too quickly. I can assure you it's much better to wait to bring somebody up in ministry than to have to bring them down. It's very, very difficult and very, very painful when you have to take someone down a notch as opposed to waiting to bring them up a notch he's been tested he's been found faithful how about you if the apostle Paul was writing to you about your life and he was writing back and said I'm I know in Cumberland here's who I'm writing about, and he puts your name in it what would he say after it what would be the legacy he only has a few words to describe your life would you be found faithful would he say that you've been tested I, I know what that person's been through I, I've watched what she's walked through boy she's been faithful she's been tested I've seen the way they work I've seen the way they labor for the Lord I've seen all that. What would he write about you? He says, next, uh, towards the end of verse 10, he says, greet those who are of the household of Aristobulus. Aristobulus. Who's Aristobulus? Do you remember uh, Herod the Great? Remember Herod the Great? The Herod who murdered the infants in Bethlehem at the time of Jesus' birth. Remember who he was, Herod the Great? He had a grandson. His grandson's name was Aristobulus. Aristobulus. Who actually lived in Rome. Rob are you saying this is the same Aristobulus? I don't know. I can't be sure but how cool would it be if it was the same? How how amazing would it be if it was the same Aristobulus? Imagine the brutal Herod's own grandson murdering the babes in Bethlehem now following the babe from Bethlehem. That would be something God would do wouldn't it? That would be. Amazing, And although, again, we can't be sure. I'm not saying that it is, but I'm saying it's kind of interesting that it's the same name. There could be many. Some days we'll find out. On the other hand, you can look at this greeting to Aristobulus. And you could say the fact that Paul addresses there the household of Aristobulus and not Aristobulus directly. You could say that it's de- Paul's depicting a family with an unbelieving husband. Perhaps Aristobulus doesn't believe on Christ, but perhaps his wife and his children do. This could have been the situation also. A whole family could have been saved, but the husband seemed to be dragging his feet. Oh, I bet we all know families like that, don't we? What should we do? We pray. Pray for the Aristobulus. Pray for the family. Pray the husband would come to the Lord. Perhaps that's the case also. Continuing on in verse 11... Greet Herodian, my countrymen, probably a fellow Jew. Greet those who are the household of Narcissus, who in the Lord, who are in the Lord. Greet Tryphena and Tryphosa, who have labored in the Lord. Greet the beloved Persis, who labored much in the Lord. Tryphena, Tryphosa, these were feminine names; they were ladies again. Paul saying they're laboring in the Lord. Tryphena, it means dainty. Tryphosa means delicate if we learn that the word labor means to the worker labor for the lord to the point of exhaustion then what he's saying is these dainty and these delicate women are laboring to the point of exhaustion for the lord what a great picture what a great picture verse 13 greet rufus chosen the lord and his mother and mine paul's got a special connection to her mark 15 21 tells us maybe you remember the story the man who helped jesus carry his cross remember who he was Simon the Cyrene, right? Simon the Cyrene. He had a son named Rufus, it tells us. Could be the same Rufus. Many folks believe it's the same guy. It's very possible that Simon's seemingly random selection to carry the cross of Christ wasn't so random at all. Instead, he believed on Jesus Christ, went back home, and his whole family believed, and now his son Rufus is quite involved with the church in Rome. He's moved to Rome, and Paul's simply greeting him. What a connection for the early church. How cool would it be as God makes these connections? Again, Rob, are you saying this absolutely the same? We don't know that. We only know that his name is Rufus. But what a cool connection it could be. Verse uh, 14. Greet Asyncretus, Philegon, Hermas, Petrobus, Hermes, and the brethren who are with them. Greet Philogus. His name means lover of the word. What about you? Would it mean lover? What would your name mean? Lover of the word. Now some people say, well he just liked to talk a lot. He loved words so he was just talking a lot. And others say, no, he loved the word of God. He loved the word of God. What, 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 would that be something Paul would say about you? Oh, they love the word of God. He or she always, every free moment in the, re- oh they're prayer warriors. Oh, what would it, how would he describe your life? And Julia, Nerus, his sister, and Olympus and all the saints who are with them, greet One another with a holy kiss. The churches of Christ greet you. Actually, in that culture, a kiss was a common form of greeting, like a handshake is in ours. So Paul's telling them, greet one another with a holy handshake. You ever had anybody greet you with a holy kiss? I have, one time. A little strange for me. I was at a pastor's conference in Florida. I'm not a touchy-feely kind of guy. Most of you guys know that, you know. I mean, some guys, oh, give me a hug. I'm okay with it, but just not my thing. One guy, one time, a grown man came up to me and he planted a kiss right on my cheek. We were at a pastor's conference. I didn't know whether they hit him or what. And his name was Steve. I said, Steve, what are you doing? He goes, I'm greeting you with a holy kiss, brother. I'm like, how about a holy handshake? And he looked at me and he said, listen, he goes, if you've been through what I've been through the last year, you're going, to be so faith, you're going to be so glad that the Lord still has you here. You're going to greet all your friends with a holy kiss because you don't know the next time you'll see him. And he had just done a great battle with cancer and was still alive and at that time didn't know how much longer he had to live. I thought, man, all right, you're the only one. <laughs> Verse uh, 17. Now I urge you, brethren, note those who cause division and offenses Contrary to the doctrine which you learned. And avoid them. For those who are such do not serve our Lord Jesus Christ but their own belly. And by smooth words and flattering speech deceive the hearts of the simple. For your obedience has become known to all. Therefore I'm glad on your behalf but I want you to be wise in what is good and simple concerning evil. And the God of peace will crush Satan under your feet shortly. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Amen. Paul says in these few verses, I want you to note two kinds of people in the church. I want you to note those who cause division and those who cause offense contrary to the things which you learned. The word note, what does it mean to note somebody? The word note means to watch and to notice carefully. To watch and to notice carefully. It means to identify them. It means to keep an eye on them, put a mark on them. First you're to notice them, and then you're to mark them. Notice them. These are people who come in the church, they're already inside the church, and they want to divide the church. They want to sow division in the church. There's nothing more devastating that the church has to walk through as a church split. And usually it's started by someone who's been sowing or causing division in the church the church. They're always pushing their beliefs. They're always pushing their opinions. It's all about, they're trying to draw people to believe what they believe. Let me, I know pastor said this, but let me tell you what it really means. And they're always trying to draw people unto themselves. They want everyone to agree with them, and it usually pertains to something the pastor or the church has a different stance on. So rather than just leaving and going to find a church that believes the way that they do, or going out to start their own church, They end up sticking around and they end up causing problems in the church that they're in. Any of you ever been part of a church split or watched a church split? It's very saddening to watch it happen. It's crushing on the pastor because he's the one that has to deal with the fallout from it. So rather than leaving, they decide they're going to draw people to themselves. They want to change the church. They want to change the pastor. And then eventually, sometimes they'll take a large group of people with them and off they go to start their own church. And then you have a church split. When Paul's speaking of offenses, what's he talking about? He's talking about those teaching false doctrine or teachings that don't don't line up with Paul's gospel or Paul's teaching. When false teachers come into the church, he's telling us we should identify them, mark them, and then what? Avoid them. When people that are sowing division in the church, identify them, mark them, and avoid them. Be careful of them. Paul tells us also about these false teachers. He said they don't seek to serve the Lord Jesus Christ. They're not out to really glorify God. Oh, they might look godly. It might look like they ha- that's what they're doing, but really it's their own belly that they're serving. What does that mean? You see, it's, not, it's not like your belly's growling. It's almost lunchtime. I want to serve. I want to feed myself. Well, in a sense it is. The word belly refers to their body or the gratification of their body. It, it's, it's, they they want the, to look spiritual, but they're really doing what they're doing by serving their flesh. And they do this with smooth words and flattering speech gratifying the attention is really on themselves facebook is all about them it's all about what they're doing it's not about the lord it's not about what god's doing it's all about my the pastor and the pastor and what he's doing it's all about him it's all about promoting him it's all about growing the church and there's church growth plants and we want to make a bigger body and a bigger church and all that kind of stuff it becomes all about promoting the organization or promoting the pastor and slowly jesus christ falls into the background. And the organization becomes the focus and not the Lord. And when you look around, you go, the Lord's done the work. It's, no, it's my fancy marketing scheme has done the work. We don't advertise for our church. It's we've grown. It's because the Lord's brought people. We don't want to advertise for the church. I don't care if the church shrinks from here. If next week we go to two services because we're running out of seats and running out of parking and all those kinds of things, we can go back next month to a small, to single service. I really, I really, and I say this from the bottom of my heart. If our church grows, great. If our church stays the same, great. If our church shrinks, Great, because the days when we had eight or ten people were beautiful days. Don't despise the days the little things. It, it, it doesn't matter to me what the church does. All I want to be found is faithful in serving the Lord. Amen. All I want to be is faithful serving him. You see, this word belly, like I said, it refers to, they want to they draw people to themselves. And oftentimes when they're doing, it's not where they fall short, is it's not in what they're saying, it's what they're leaving out. You see, they, they, they want to only teach certain parts of the Bible. They don't want to teach the difficult parts. They're afraid they might offend somebody and they might leave. Listen, if the Bible offends you and you leave, so be it. I'm not going to chase after you. I'm going to stay here and teach the Bible. And if you want to hear it, those that want to hear it will be here. And those that won't, won't. And I'm going to do it to the best of my ability. But they don't want to offend anybody. They just want to gather more people into themselves. And we see that happening in Christianity today. There's a whole push to be relevant in Christianity. We don't want to be relevant. We're not like the world. We're supposed to be different than the world. People should look at our Christian home and it should be completely different than your neighbor's non-Christian home. The way that we raise our kids, the way that we speak, the way that we work at our jobs should be completely different. There should be, there should be very little, if any, similarities to the world. Doesn't mean we exclude ourselves from the world. Doesn't mean we don't go into the world, but we shouldn't look like the world. You see, it's simple. A man of God speaks what God once said. He speaks and he teaches the word of God. A false teacher Tells folks what they want to hear. They just tell them what they want to hear, just so they can develop a following and bring attention to themselves. That seems to be their goal. That seems to be what they're looking at. And unfortunately, these people who seek to divide the body of Christ and these false teachers, they don't come into the church wearing name tags, do they? It'd be a lot easier if they would say, my name is, and I'm a false teacher. Or my name is, and I'm here to divide the body of Christ. But it doesn't work that way. They come into our body, they become our friends, they may even be our family members, they become close to us. But Paul says we have an obligation to protect the body of Christ. He said we need to identify them, mark them, and avoid them. Be, be being very, very careful. I say, in closing out just this one little section here, please pray for the unity of this church and those of you that are visiting, pray for the unity of your own church. If you're just here for the weekend or visiting for for whatever reason, the unity in the body of Christ is something that should be regular in our prayers. And I'm not ecumenical. I'm not saying all the churches need to come together. No, we're different for different reasons, and that's okay. But what I am saying is, for those of you that are in this body, make it a regular prayer that, that this that division doesn't happen in our church. And if you're like I said, if you're visiting, pray for your own church because it'll devastate the church. In verse 19, Paul tells everyone, he says this, he says, everyone's heard about your obedience. How cool is that? Church in Rome, Rome, everyone's heard about your obedience, and I want you to be wise in what is good and simple in what is evil. Be wise in what is good. It's far better for us to be focused on what is good rather than evil. You see, sometimes in Christianity, you watch our news, and what happens? The news is all about what? What's evil? I don't watch the news anymore. I read it because I can scan through what I want to see and I can skip over all the nonsense. I don't want to watch the 14 programs or, or sections before I get to the one I really want to hear. Paul's saying, hey, focus on what is good and not what is evil. He says we're to be simple in what is evil. And the word simple refers to being innocent. It shouldn't be our focus. It shouldn't be what we're looking at. Not having, it means not having anything to do with what is evil. Don't even pay attention to it. Forget about it. It doesn't mean we don't pray for it, but it's not our focus. I don't know about you, but I'm sure looking forward to the day when the Lord crushes Satan under our feet. I can't wait for that one. I'm, I'm looking forward to that, till, till Satan, that, that means to crush, it means to literally overcome. No more control, no more power. I know his control is limited at what's only been given to him by the Lord, but there's coming a day where he will be crushed under our feet. I can't wait for that day. Keep going in verse 21. Timothy, my fellow worker, Lucius, Jason, uh, Sosipater, my countrymen, greet you. These were people who were with Paul in Corinth as he's writing this letter. I, Tertius, who wrote this epistle, greet you in the Lord. Tertius was writing the letter as Paul dictated it. This is the only letter where the, where the scribe's name is mentioned. Verse 23, Gaius, my host, and the host of the whole church, greets you. Erastus, the treasurer of the city, greets you. Quartus, a brother, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, be with you all, amen. Two names there that stand out, uh, Tertius and Quartus. Tertius and Quartus—they mean nothing to us in American in, in English. It means nothing, but they what they mean in Greek is the number three and the number four. The, the, the names were your number three and your number four. Well, what does that really mean? Oftentimes in the Roman world, slaves were given weren't given names; they were given numbers. So they were referred to them by their numbers, just as a just as a numeral. It's possible that these two believers who were given numbers were former slaves. But now, Paul says they're brothers. They're brothers. Never underestimate the revolutionary impact of Christianity. Never underestimate the impact that Christianity had on slavery. For in a moment, overnight, slaves and nobles became equals in Christ. It's amazing. Nowhere else does that happen. Doesn't matter what cultural background you come from, doesn't matter how much money you have, doesn't matter whether you're a servant or whether you're a master in Jesus Christ, we're equal. We're all believers in Jesus Christ. There, there's no one believer that's better than another. You might look at me and go, well, you're the pastor. It doesn't matter, I'm just like you. If I'm not supposed to be up here teaching, I'm wasting, whatever, I'm wasting my time because God hasn't called me to. I don't get any more, any more credit in heaven for teaching the Bible than you get for serving and cleaning the bathrooms or whatever the Lord has called you to do. It's just a matter of walking in obedience to what he's called you to do. Sure, I'm held to a higher standard. The Bible tells us that. But if I'm obedient and you're obedient to the Lord, our rewards are gonna be the same. If I'm doing what I'm not supposed to be doing and you're doing what you're not supposed to be doing, our lack of rewards will be the same. I just happen to be the one that's up here teaching on Sundays. Look at verse 25. Now, to him who is able to establish you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery kept secret since the world began, but now made manifest... "...and by the prophetic scriptures made known to all nations, according to the commandment of the everlasting God, for obedience to the faith, to God alone wise, be glory through Jesus Christ forever." Amen. Notice who does the establishing according to Paul's gospel. Jesus does it. The Lord does it. He does the work as we walk in obedience. One commentator said this, this gospel, Paul's gospel, this gospel where God does the work, where the Holy Spirit does the work in you, he said this gospel is overpowering. It bulldozes sin, it buries doubt, and it packs firm the footing on which we stand. The gospel that Paul teaches, the gospel that we believe, bulldozes sin. It gives us a firm fitting, firm footing to stand on. It bulldozes our doubt. It removes our doubts. We can be faithful and confident that it's God doing the work, not me, not you, but the Lord doing the work. I read this story. There was a wino who approached D.L. Moody after a meeting one night. He was drunk as a skunk, approaching Dr. D.L. Moody. He said, Mr. Moody, I'm one of your very first converts. Moody replied this, He said, you must be one of my converts because you sure don't look, look like you were converted by the Lord. You must be someone I converted because the Lord hasn't converted you because I can see by your actions, by the fact that he was drunk as a skunk, that it wasn't the Lord's work. You see, Jesus causes us to stand strong and not flounder back and forth. He's the one that does the work in us. You can't save yourself. I can't save you. Jesus is the only one who can deliver you from your sins and release you from the power which sin has over you. That's what the gospel tells us. That's what Paul tells us. You see, the plan concerning the Messiah, Paul said it's been announced previously through prophecy. It's in the Old Testament. It talks all about the Messiah coming. But now that mystery has been made known. That mystery has now become a revelation through prophecy. But now it's understood. That's why in the very beginning of this letter, the Apostle Paul in chapter 1 of Romans, verse 16, wrote this. For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first, and also for the Greek. You see, the whole book of Romans, all 16 chapters are based around that thesis statement. Paul took the rest of the book of Romans, starting in, right after that, and he explained why he was not ashamed. He wasn't talking about being embarrassed at the water cooler at work that someone would think he's a Christian. He said, my gospel the gospel of Jesus Christ will stand up to anything you have to offer. And I'm going to walk you through the Old Testament and show you how Jews and Gentiles alike can be saved right next to each other. And that is exactly what he's done in the book of Romans. If there's anything the book of Romans explains from beginning to end, it's the greatness and the glory of this plan, that God ha- the plan of God that Paul has preached. He explains it from beginning to end as good news. And it's entirely fitting that Paul concludes this letter praising God praising the God of such a gospel.